0: Welcome to the Strategic Investor. Join us as we interview some of the world's most productive asset managers and uncover sophisticated and unique investment strategies in the markets. Here is your host, Charlie Wright.
1: Hello and welcome to Strategic Investor Radio on OC Talk Radio, where we bring you investment strategies you are not hearing elsewhere. Today, we'd like to welcome back our favorite economist, Dr. Bob Dealey, Chief Economist and Publisher of the No Spin Forecast, an economic forecasting newsletter published out of and where he speaks speaks to us today from Chicago. So, Dr. Bob, welcome back to Strategic Investor Radio.
0: Thank you, Charlie. It's really a pleasure to be back.
1: So, Dr. Bob, you've got a Ph.D. in Economics from University of Texas. So, you're a Longhorn. You've spent decades as an economist for various banks SNLs, etc. And uh, you're now retired from that and you publish your no spin forecast. Give us a 30 second biography, will you?
0: Well, as you mentioned, I did my grad work at UT. Uh, I moved up here to Chicago to go to work for the Continental Bank, which was an adventure.
1: I was going to say, is that uh, the one that went, went down?
0: Uh, well, if you want to call it that, it was uh, it, we had some difficulties that were resolved by the FDIC. Let's put it I said Okay. <laughs> uh, after the Continental, I worked for the Northern Trust. Uh, and during that time, not only did I spend some time in economic research, but I was also a portfolio manager in the fixed income uh, department. After I left the Northern, I started this business, which is a combination of the work that I do on my website, on which I publish the newsletter that you mentioned, but I also do consulting work uh, for a fairly wide variety of uh, companies now across uh, a fairly broad spectrum of the economies, ranging from agriculture into financial management. Um to my utter amazement, people like you ask me to come back and talk, so I'm always happy to do it.
1: <laughs> well, Dr. Bob, we we appreciate you doing that. And, and uh, on a personal note, I really appreciate your taking time for me more than once when I hear something from an economist somewhere that is either doom and gloom or overly bright and festive, and I contact you uh, together typically with their, their narrative and ask you your opinion, and you, you take significant time to set me straight. I I really have appreciated that here.
0: It's my pleasure, Charlie.
1: So, so Bob, let's start with this. What irks you the most about economic forecasts that we hear on CNBC and Bloomberg and read in the Wall Street Journal, etc.?
0: Well, what irks me the most is that most of them are not forecasts. They're sales pitches. (laughs) And uh, this is... One of the problems that happens, uh, someone wants you to buy or sell something, and so they give you an economic pitch in front of it, which remarkably always leads to the conclusion that you should buy or sell whatever it is that they're pushing. Um, There's nothing wrong with that, as long as people say that this is a sales pitch and not a forecast. So if you ask me what irks me the most, that's it. And then the second part of that is the folks who have no particular background in economics who suddenly feel the uh, uh, authority uh, to make a pitch uh, and disguise it as a forecast. So those are my two pet peeves.
1: Yeah, and I doubt that many people really would disagree with you on either one of those. Uh, So what could we say that you wish more people, especially those prognosticating and, and and talking in the media about the economy. What do you wish that those people better understood about economics and the economy?
0: Well, the first thing is that it can't always be reduced to a soundbite. There are issues that you can talk about very concisely, but there are others that require some explanation. And to simply say that everything can be reduced to you know 25 words or less, I think is the wrong approach. It also creates an expectation on the part of the people who are listening that every third sentence that you speak is going to be some kind of a punchline, and that's not necessarily true. There are times when it can take a while to set something up so that a conclusion can be presented, and then based on that uh, to make recommendations uh, that might have something to do with investment strategy. I always used to tell people that when I worked for the bank, I had to be very careful which direction I was facing uh, when I said something, because for the folks on the foreign exchange desk, a fact might be a buy, and for the fo- that same fact, for the people on the bond desk, could be a sell. The fact was the same. Let's just say it was the unemployment rate that had come out. And very often the media not only fails to set up, but they also fail to provide context.
1: You know, uh, when uh, one of my sons was in college on that very subject, uh, he called me and said, Dad, I've got a book that uh, we we just read for this class, and uh, so I'm going to bring it home because I know you'd love it. And he did. He brought it home, and it's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it was uh, written in the early 80s. And this guy uh, went back into history, and he looked at the number of people, percentage of people who were literate, who read Thomas Paine's book, Common Sense, other books, etc. And he found that people in the past, they were very, very uh, not just literate, but informed about complex issues. And he showed how Lincoln-Douglas debates, they would move into a town to debate and they would debate all day long. And then this guy said, but that all changed with radio and then even more so with television. And by the mid-80s, he said, everything now is reduced to either a soundbite or a slogan. And if that was the case in the 80s, now we've got many soundbites and slogans. And it is so frustrating, especially in areas of persuasion, such as politics, sales, etc. Everything is is the soundbite or or a very short narrative, and who knows what is acu- acu- is, is really accurate here. So I, I can appreciate what you say. It's very, very difficult. So what would you say are the key drivers and movers of the U.S. economy?
0: Well, the one I always tell folks is if you could only have one statistic, the number that you want is the level and change of total nonfarm payrolls. If you know where those are going... Uh, you know a lot about what you need to know about where the economy is going. They are People are hired because firms want to do more, and people are fired because firms want to do less. Uh, Now, on a month-to-month basis, the number can be a a little bit noisy, but there are ways to filter out some of the noise. So I always tell people that if I can only have one number, that's the one I want. Now, after that, if you're going to get into making other types of decisions, you might need some more detail, but that then brings us to specifics and to context. But to me, it's the level of employment.
1: Okay. Now on the level of employment here, Bob, uh, how about the, the fact that not all jobs are created equal and we've moved into a service economy at much lower income? Does uh, you know, non-farm payroll take that into consideration?
0: It does, but you have to then get a little bit further into the report. Now you've given me the choice of more than one statistic, and you've probably come to what is either number two or number three on my list, which is, as you point out, the composition of payrolls. Over time, that matters greatly. And as you know, and as you've already mentioned, if we create low-paying jobs, we get one outcome. If we create high-paying jobs, we get another. But the key point that we need to know first is, are we creating jobs? And that's where the first number that I mentioned comes into play.
1: Okay. So uh, looking at just today, and and as we know, you know, time goes on and many people will be listening to this uh, you know, for for some months, if not years uh, in the future, Uh, we are at a very low unemployment rate. Um, Is that somehow misleading?
0: Well, no, uh, because it's no more leading or misleading than your age. Uh, You know, as of today, you are a certain number of years old, and that Can be an important statistic especially if you're in certain contexts Uh, for example you know are you old enough to drink are you old enough to um, buy a car buy a house whatever Um, are you old enough to retire are you old enough to qualify for social security right your age matters Um, but beyond that uh, it's just a number the unemployment rate where we are now reflects the fact that we've been in an expansion that has lasted quite a long time and we've put a lot of people to work Is the unemployment rate some kind of a ceiling? No, because we still know that there are people who potentially could come into the labor force and be put to work. The question is, under what circumstances and at what price, and those then get into complications where I can already hear your audience falling asleep saying, why did Charlie call this guy back? He's just <laughs> droning on and on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no. So, so, so let's change the subject just a little bit. Key things to look for, but, but besides um, you know, non-farm payroll. Uh, I've read more than once, especially lately, that, that a key indicator can be Transportation that it's kind of a leading indicator of what's going on in the economy. The more that goods are being transported, the better it is for the economy, etc. What would you say
0: to that? Well, I would agree. The only problem with the transportation statistics is you have to be very careful of whose statistics you're looking at and whether or not they are seasonally adjusted. One of the statistics that you can find very easily, the American Railroad Association, uh, or the Association of American Railroads more properly, has a website in which they show you weekly car loads. If you look at that chart, you will see that five times a year it appears that rail traffic stops. And it just turns out that all of those are the long weekends with national holidays. So you have one at Memorial Day, you have one at uh, the Fourth of July, you have one at Labor Day, you have one at Thanksgiving, you have one at Christmas. Okay, well, if you know that, then you look at the chart and and you say, okay, no problem. But if you don't know that, and you have someone who's trying to tell you, going back to our sales pitch, did you see the latest railroad numbers? They fell out of bed. Well, no, if we're looking at a long holiday weekend, because the trains don't run. So my point being that, yes, they are very good if you know how to use them and you uh, take account of it. A parallel, and I won't drone on anymore, is shipping rates, and you're going to be reading about this probably in the next six weeks. Every January, shipping, ocean shipping rates go down very sharply. And the main reason for that is the Chinese New Year, okay? They take part of January or early February off. So as a consequence, ships don't move. So the spot rate for ships goes down because a lot of them are idle. So you're going to see some folks say, oh, my God. Shipping rates went down. Well, let's put it in context and see whether indeed shipping rates have gone down. Trucking freight rates have been not going down, but the pace of increase has slowed because freight volumes have slowed in part related to the trade war. So, yes, transportation can be very helpful, but it's one of those things that you have to be very careful with.
1: Okay, appreciate that. That's very helpful. So, let's build on your statement about statistics. So, you know, uh, since uh, since the Great Recession, 2008, inflation has been very, very low. And yet during much of that time, I hear my wife and other people say, hey, you go to the grocery store and prices are increasing. And in California, we've had increase for some time, increasing gasoline prices. And then you you realize that Energy and food are not factored into those inflation rates. So, two questions. One is, can we have confidence in the reported official statistics from the government? And number two, is it fair and accurate that they exclude certain categories like energy and food?
0: Okay, the answer to the first question is resoundingly yes.
1: Oh, well, really? Okay.
0: Especially the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but I would include both the Commerce Department and the Census Bureau in this. Yes, the folks who do that, and I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of talking to any of the people who work there. I have had the privilege of talking to every commissioner of labor statistics for the last 40 years. Oh, wow, they great. All been, they have all been exceedingly confident people, and I've regularly talked to people at the BLS because I use the statistics all the time. Could they be better? Absolutely. And what I tell people is that if we spent what we spend on the landing gear of the (laughs) F-35 on the CPI, the CPI would sing and dance. Okay. (laughs) Okay? So our problem with the statistics is not some sort of thing that these people are making it up. The problem, if we have one... Is that we are not doing absolutely the best that we can in terms of gathering data. But the BLS is working on that. One of the things that they have now are algorithms that go in through the internet and pick prices off of websites, which provides a different perspective and it's also a very cost efficient way of gathering the data. Now, as to food and energy, I have to tell you a story. Way back in the day, and I, this goes back to when I was in grad school in the late 60s and when I went to work in the early 70s, we had something called double-digit inflation, which right. you may remember. Yeah. And one of the things that was done both by the Nixon administration and then by the Federal Reserve was to say, well, now look, if we take out food and energy prices, okay, the rate of inflation is not as high, which is true. And this is where the term core CPI came right. from. It was invented by Herb Stein, who was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers under Nixon. And he and Arthur Burns at the time thought that we needed something to make inflation look not as bad as it was. Okay, Core CPI is valid only in one regard, for the use of monetary policy, because the interest elasticity of tomatoes is zero, The Fed said, you know, if we're going to make monetary policy, we may not want to have the price of tomatoes in whatever we're using to steer this ship. Doesn't mean we ignore the price of tomatoes, but we take them off. The same held for... Fuel prices at the time, I would argue today there is more interest sensitivity in fuel prices than there had been, partly because of the way that we explore for oil and gas. But, again, I'm an economist and I'm digressing, so feel free to (laughs) whack me upside the head and bring me back to the topic. Okay. The last point, and I will stop on this, is that the CPI is a composite measure of everybody's spending. No one person buys the CPI every month because included in the CTI, along with food and energy prices, are the prices of new and used cars, are the prices of college education, are the prices of cable TV, are the prices of video games, are the prices of movie tickets, are the prices of socks and underwear. Okay? okay, so your CPI and my CPI are going to be very different because your budget and my budget are probably quite a bit different. Right. I buy winter coats and you don't, right? Okay? <laughs> <laughs> but the point being, the composite CPI is a reasonable representation of the rate of inflation in the economy as a whole. If you want details, the BLS will give you. Detail upon detail about particular prices, they also break it down by regions and cities. And there will be variations between regions and cities and the national. But the idea that this is some kind of a fiction is one of the more vicious lies that we allow to persist. And the people are allowed to say it without evidence. Uh, and uh, it gets repeated, and it's really something that we should try and put a stop to. Could it be better? Yes. But can we believe it? Absolutely.
1: Okay, Bob, appreciate that very much. Uh, Continuing on that subject, China. Can we believe the economic statistics that come out of China? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Not said, huh?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, if you want me to qualify it, I I won't. <laughs> the reason is twofold, and a part of this goes way back again. Now I'm I spent part of my time in grad school with in with development economics because at the time I thought at one point I was going to do something other than what has turned out to be my checkered uh, professional career. And one of the things that we did at the time was look at the statistical process here and in other parts of the world. You get into underdeveloped countries, which until recently China was, and the statistical authority usually has either no money or less than no money. And so what those statistics mean is highly variable. Okay. The Chinese uh, have an economy that They understand about as well as we understood ours in 1929, which is when our GDP statistics first came out. And our GDP statistics were constructed based on what was measurable, not what should be in GDP. It was Simon Kuznets and a couple of other people went out and said, who has some numbers? (laughs) And it turns out that there were several agencies that did. The BLS had them, the Federal Reserve had them, and others did. And from that, they constructed the first what are called national income and product accounts. We have since evolved in that, and today's NIPAs are the wonder of the world. Us and a couple of people in Europe have the best NIPAs because we spend a lot of money on it. Chinese are still developing theirs. So what I tell folks is that, yeah, Chinese GDP is a number. It's best thought about in terms of Is it bigger or smaller? But don't mess with the decimal point. It doesn't mean anything.
1: (laughs) Okay. well, thank you. So let's go to your uh, no spin forecast here. Mm -hmm. Um, You you obviously are comfortable in forecasting as far as nine months ahead. Why are you comfortable in forecasting that far?
0: Well, the combination of variables that I use are the easiest analogy i can give you are the headlights on your car if you turn on your headlights at night they illuminate the road a certain number of feet ahead of you if you turn on the high beams it illuminates further but anything beyond that it's as if you don't have headlights which is why they tell you that you shouldn't drive faster than certain speeds uh, because if you do you might as well turn off your headlights there will be something out there that's going to be upon you sooner than you can react to and sooner than you can break for. I have found that you can reliably identify turning points in the economy from about a year away. But when you get further than that, it doesn't work. I settled on nine months because when I ran the model, nine months seemed to fit the best when you compare it against all of the recessions since 1955. Is it exactly nine months? The answer is no, Sure, but all of the recessions have happened in the range where the model said they should happen. So that's that's that. Okay. The other thing is is that the forecasting tool is only the first part of the process. In addition to the information that you get from the forecasting tool, I look at an array of... Uh, data from other indicators, one of them being non-farm payrolls, uh, for other things that you can use to try and figure out where we are in the cycle. So my feeling is, is if you can get a reasonable read on where we are relative to the next business cycle event, it can help you make decisions uh, relating to financial management and also relating to uh, some of my other clients who make things, how many things to make or not make.
1: Okay. So uh, just briefly, Bob, if you could share with us, uh, you're an economist. You're looking into the future. You know, you've been with banks and financial institutions and places, and uh, they they look to you for guidance and direction on uh, forecasting. Have you had any I told you so moments in your role as an economist, and and how did it go? And we just have a couple of minutes for this.
0: Well, I had two. One is very short. I was at... Giving an economic briefing at a hotel at O'Hare. This is back in the days when we had physical newspapers. Okay. And I gave a forecast in the meeting. Walked out of the meeting room, and the guy was loading the evening edition of the newspaper. In my forecast, I had said the Fed was not going to raise rates. The headline on the newspaper was, Fed raises rates. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) And then the other one, this happened at the end of the last recession. I went to a meeting of some folks in January of 2009, in which I told them that my model said the recession would be over probably in the middle of the summer. Okay, it turns out it was over in June. They thought that was the worst forecast they had ever heard, and I was not invited back to that group for 8 years. Oh my goodness. I've since gone back and they the guy who fired me has since apologized. But yes, I've had I've been I've been wrong and been reminded, but I've also been fired for being right. So Okay. I can go both
1: ways. Okay. So Bob, a final question here. And, and I'm not trying to get on a soapbox here. I, I'm seeking to understand, all right? Am I the only one deeply concerned about our national debt of $23 trillion? Okay, do, uh, do you see it as irresponsible as I see it, or am I missing something?
0: Well, the only thing I would—I am concerned, but the only thing I would suggest is that we take that number— and do what I would call a little financial analysis. The United States government owns a whole bunch of things. There's an asset side to our balance sheet as well as a liability.
1: Okay, okay.
0: The Army is worth something. The Air Force is worth something. The state of Nevada, of which the United States government owns, I think like 97%, is worth something. So if we were to, first of all, set up a balance sheet, I think some of the source of alarm would go down. Second, within the debt, we have the part of the debt that is uh, what the Treasury has borrowed from the Social Security Administration. We don't have time to go into that, but you have, in my opinion, you have to take that out of the $25 trillion total because it's a different animal. It's uh,
1: a different animal, but but, but it's still... Viable as a debt. I mean, it's got to be paid, right?
0: It is, but remember that there's a revenue stream behind that. Uh, that True, true. That is not the same revenue stream that's behind what we could call the general obligation. Okay. My point being yes, you are absolutely right to be concerned. I am concerned because. No matter, it seems, who is in charge, they continue to run up the debt.
1: That's right. There are no heroes there at all.
0: I (laughs) I think we are making a mistake. But before we decide that, oh, my God, we got $25 trillion, I think we need to first do a national balance sheet, second, identify the sources of, of, of payment and debt service that are attached to the various components, and then start making decisions about what we want to do next. But, yes, I share your concern, but it's a little bit different.
1: Okay. No, I I appreciate that very much. So how about final words for our listeners here, Bob?
0: Well, I would say season's greetings. Happy New Year. And the other... This is advice from uh, Bear Bryant, who you and I may remember as a coach at Alabama. Yeah. Uh, He had a a rule that said, uh, keep your chin strap buckled at all times.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think right now everyone should have their chin strap firmly buckled Uh because I think it's going to get more exciting rather than less over the next year or so.
1: Yeah, it is. We've got uh, a very uh, exciting uh, 2020 ahead of us here. So, Dr. Bob, thanks so much again for uh, joining us, and you kept it lively. It didn't uh, uh, suffer from e- economic speak here, and uh, we really appreciate you sharing some time with us today. And again, how about uh, uh, how about your, your website for those who may be interested in uh, the no-spin forecast?
0: Well, the, the easiest way to get to it, it would just be to Google my name. It's You can just do Bob Dealy, it's D I E L I, and with that, it will uh, light up uh, my site, which is, uh, or a link to my site, which is nospinforecast.com.
1: Okay. Bob, thank you again uh, very much for joining us, and our best wishes to you for the holidays and for your continued. Success And hope you don't get uh, fired too many times <laughs> for either being right or wrong here.
0: Well, I appreciate the chance, and I hope we can do this again soon.
1: Again, we've been talking with Dr. Bob Dealey, uh, publisher of the No Spend Forecast. You're listening to Strategic Investor Radio and OC Talk Radio, where we bring you investment strategies you are not hearing elsewhere. We'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at info at strategicinvestorradio.com. Visit our website to listen to all of our podcasts and shows. Those, strategicinvestorradio.com. I'm Charlie Wright, wishing you an enjoyable week, a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year's, and Productive Investing. Strategic Investor Radio is a production of OC Talk Radio and is provided for educational purposes only. Content of this program and the views of the guests should not be considered as recommendations by OC Talk Radio or investment advice from the host, Charlie Wright, or any other entity attached to this production. Investors should always consult qualified financial, investment, tax, or legal professionals
0: prior to investing.